0: Well, it is really great to have Morgan Nims back all the way from Deutschland. I have to say I'm very jealous. One of my favorite places is Deutschland. So be sure to visit with Morgan. I know she'll share some of her adventures. I also want to um, have you look in your bulletins at the new Read It selection uh, this month. This is a a book written a few years ago by J.D. Greer. Incidentally, J.D. Greer is the one who convinced me that we need to close every service by saying um, you were sent. So we can credit him with that. But this book is entitled Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. Just for fun. How many of you asked Jesus into your heart more than once? I'll be the. Look at that. This is a relevant book. And uh, I I don't share this with too many people. And I guess now that you're all going to hear it, I won't be able to say that anymore. But... I think when I was a boy, I probably asked Jesus into my heart about 30 times. I just had to get it right, right? And uh, and so this book, I, I wish I would have had this book a long time ago. It would be a tremendous encouragement to you. The name of this very short study that we're in is down to earth. If you've missed the last week or so, we are taking a brief detour from the gospel of John. We will return after the first of the year, but we are celebrating uh, these days of Advent in this very short study that I've entitled down to earth. And this morning, we want to continue to devote our time to learning about our savior, our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember last week we launched into this short study by uh, taking a brief look at Philippians chapter 2. I want to read those verses for you in verses 9 to 11. Paul the Apostle says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The title of the message this morning is Clearing Our Focus, The Names and Nature of Christ. And as I was preparing for this message, a random image popped in my mind. I'm sure that, and I cannot for the life of me remember what these these photographs are called, but you will remember probably in the late 80s, the early 90s, the little kiosks that you would find in the malls and they would have those uh, photographs like an art image that you would look at and you would kind of go cross-eyed and you would look and look and look. How many of you are with me? You remember that? Someone nod your head, please. Okay, two of you. So you would look at this image and If you did it right, you were supposed to see past the original image for some kind of a secret image. (sighs) I tried over and over and over again. And I must confess, I I was never able to do it. I was never able to see that quote-unquote magical image. I think this serves as a fairly decent illustration of what oftentimes happens in the Christian life. You see, it's easy for us to get fixated on a specific vision or portrait of Jesus that is not altogether biblical. It is very easy for us to to begin to, to conjure up in our own minds what Jesus is like when we go to the Word of God and we subject that image to the Word of God... It doesn't even resemble the Jesus of the Bible. And so this morning, I want to guide you on a very basic journey where we will see together a clearer picture of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, I want to draw your attention to two major headings. First, we will look together at the names of Christ. This will not be an exhaustive list, but we will scan throughout the Scripture and look at some of the names of Jesus. The second heading I want to explore together is the nature of Christ. My prayer is that... Our worship together as the people of God would be informed by the Bible that we would receive an accurate picture of who the Lord Jesus Christ is as we linger over these headings. We pray with me together. Father, this morning as we walk into this sanctuary and see the the beautiful lights and the decorations, we're reminded once again that we're right at the beginning of the season of Advent. That time of year when we remember uh, the birth of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, our challenge this morning is to make sure that we are seeing Jesus through the proper lens of scripture. And so I would pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us the ability to do just that. And God, you know, as I've uh, walked through this message and have been confronted with the, the very simple reality of Jesus' names, and also his nature, that we need to be reminded afresh of who Jesus is and all that he has accomplished, and so much so that we will continue that study next week. And so these are things that we, we, we will look at and examine for all eternity as we worship before the throne. And so would you remind us of, once again, who your son is? May our hearts be... Uh, engaged afresh may our minds be engaged and may you enable us as your people to worship you rightly today for it's in jesus name we pray amen once again the first of two headings i want to begin by having you look with me at the names of christ and i want to begin just by looking at the name jesus The name that we often just take for granted. And the name Jesus, as some of you know, is derived from a Hebrew name. It's derived from the Hebrew name of Joshua. It is generally accepted that Jesus' name is derived from the root, the Hebrew root, yasha, which means to save. To save. And this expresses the very idea of redemption. Generally at Christmas time I will turn to my my favorite Christmas verse. Do you have a favorite Christmas verse? And I would say that at least one of my favorite verses is in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 that expresses this very important reality that Jesus came to save. The word of God says that she speaking of Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua. For he will save his people from their sins. I want you to think about that just for a moment. You think about redemptive history and you think as Jason made reference to the Old Testament saints who waited and waited and waited for the coming of the Messiah. This is the one who has come to save us from our sins. Then look next at the title of Christ. Christ, which is, we recognize Jesus is the personal, his personal name, but Christ is his official name, which means anointed one. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the anointed one. Third, I want you to see the title, Son of Man. Son of Man. And we looked at this for a moment last week and saw this title appear in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 that says, I saw the night visions and beheld in the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and is presented before him. And you remember the appeal that I made last week that as you spend time in the word of God, that as you read the, the stories in the Old Testament that you'd be thinking about Jesus That you would remember Jesus. And as you think about Jesus and remember Jesus, that would cause you to worship Jesus as you see him in the pages of the Old Testament. And look at the fourth category here, the fourth name, and that is the Son of God. He's not only the Son of Man, he's the Son of God, which is actually applied in three different senses. I want to put these on the PowerPoint to uh, have you examine them for a moment. We see that the Son of God first is applied in the messianic sense. And we have been singing about that this morning, that Jesus is our Messiah. But the Son of God is also applied in the Trinitarian sense. Once again, we recognize that we worship one God who is revealed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which points to the pre-existence of the Lord Jesus Christ that we will look at in just a moment. And the final sense that the Son of God is applied is in what you might refer to as the nativistic sense, or the nativity sense, that Christ is called the Son of God in view of His supernatural birth. The one who has existed from all eternity came and was born of the Virgin Mary. And then, of course, one name you're very familiar with is we refer to the Lord Jesus Christ once again as Lord. And the name Lord is applied to God in what theologians refer to as the LXX. The LXX. That is the Old Testament translation, or I should say the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so this is how scholars would apply that. The name of Lord is applied to God, and the LXX as the equivalent of Jehovah. Moreover, we see that Jesus has the title Good Shepherd. One of my favorite, Jesus himself said in John chapter 10, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is referred to in the New Testament as the friend of sinners. In Matthew 11, the Son of Man, a title that we've just examined a moment ago, came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds." We need to remember as we come into the Christmas season that Jesus came as the friend of sinners. That's good news for me. And that's good news for you. Jesus is also referred to as the Savior. A great Christmas passage in Luke chapter 2 verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus is the Messiah. In John 141, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, "We have found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. Jesus is referred to, if you will turn with me to Isaiah chapter seven verse 14, and we 'll look at a few passages here, but in Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, we read these words: "Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign." Behold, the virgin, that is Mary, shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, or God with us. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and we looked at these in brief last week. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We see here, and we'll just scroll through this on the PowerPoint, but he is not only the Mighty God, he is pronounced as the Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Many of you will remember as we started our study in the Gospel of John, and you can rush there with me if you would, in the opening verses of John chapter 1. We made much ado of that first verse as John the Apostle says, In the beginning was the Lagos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The important title of the Lagos. And as John wrote writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knew full well that the Greek thinkers, that the Greek philosophers, that the Greek writers, they would recognize who he was referring to when he referred to the Logos. Additionally, in John chapter 129, we see that Jesus is called the Lamb. In John one twenty nine, we read these words. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world." Finally, in Revelation five five and six, Jesus is referred to as the the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. Those of you who have read. The Chronicles of Narnia, most notably The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. No, this is exactly where C.S. Lewis, the great British author, got his inspiration for this amazing set of books as he names the lion Aslan, representing the Lord Jesus Christ. These are a few of the names of Jesus that surface in the pages of sacred scripture. But now I want to have you turn your attention briefly with me to the nature of Christ. Move from the names of Christ to the nature of Christ. And hear what we are exploring this morning when, when theologians wrestle with these matters. We're exploring the branch of theology referred to as Christology. Christology that is the study of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and really what we're doing this morning is we of course don't have time to to do a full orbed christology this is not a comprehensive christology it's kind of like we're we're going out to the lake together and as as your pastor as your shepherd i'm going to i'm going to take the rock and i'm going to say we're going to we're going to skim the rock just over the the top Of the lake, and we're going to do an overview of Christology. When we look at the nature of Christ, there is so much we could say, but I want to focus on a fundamental reality this morning, and that is that Jesus is fully God. Someone help me. And fully man. Jesus is fully God, and Jesus is fully man. And we don't have time to to delve into church history. I know that when Lauren taught his class uh, several months ago, he dealt uh, in brief with this subject. And that is that whenever we, we overemphasize the deity of Christ, or we overemphasize the humanity of Christ, or when we underemphasize one or the other, we fall off the cliff. We fall off the doctrinal cliff. And so there are some in church history who would emphasize one to the exclusion of of the other. And we want to be careful to make sure that we maintain the biblical balance. And this is something we can all remember. Jesus is fully God and man. The one who came as the God-man. One of the things that's helped me over the years is to turn my attention to the great British theologian John Owen. Now, John Owen was one of the, the most amazing Puritan writers who ever lived. Indeed, I would count John Owen to be one of the top five theologians in the history of the church. And John Owen wrote a catechism. A catechism to instruct people and to help parents raise their children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And one of the questions, and you remember that the way a catechism works is, it's simply a question with an answer. Question and answer. And this question that Owen poses is a good one. He says, what does the scripture teach concerning the person of Jesus Christ? And tragically, we have moved away from catechisms in our culture. Uh, One of my dreams in the days ahead is that we would revive the catechisms. And my friend Chris Veldman is doing all he can do to help revive it. As For many years now, he has taught the, the Heidelberg Catechism in junior high Sunday school. But for our purposes this morning, we, we look at this question that John Owen poses. One of the beauty of a, beauties of the catechism is this, is you're forced to, to crystallize an answer in a very short sentence. And Owen gives us an answer here that I want us to linger over this morning. The answer to the question is this, that he, that is Jesus, is truly God and Perfect man, partaker of the natures of God and man in one person between whom he is a mediator. If we could look that on the screen, let's view, at, view this one more time together. The answer to the question that Jesus is truly God and perfect man, partaker of the natures of God and man in one person between whom he is a mediator. It's interesting as we look at the answer to that question, we will be unable to to do a comprehensive treatment of that, but I want to focus this morning for our purposes on these two fundamental realities, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. So we begin by looking at the biblical reality that Jesus is fully God. And as we examine that reality, I want to have you look at four elements that affirm that fact. Four elements that affirm the deity of Christ. First of all, we begin with the names once again of Jesus. The names of Jesus. The book of Revelation says this about Jesus He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last. He is the, the beginning and the end. And Alpha and Omega, first and last, beginning and end, once again, Point to his eternal existence. He does not have a beginning. He does not have an end. He is the eternal one, the Alpha and the Omega. In Acts 3, verse 14, we read, But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. We see that Jesus receives this title of the Holy One. Who other than God? Would receive the title Holy One. We also see in the Word of God in First Corinthians chapter two, verse eight, that Jesus is referred to as the Lord of Glory. And one important thing to remember is that whenever Jesus received uh, these titles, or people referred to him as the Holy One or the Lord of Glory, he never said, "Oh no, 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 I'm not the Holy One," or "No, no, no, I'm not the Lord of Glory." Let me have some fun, BJ. If someone referred to you as the Lord of Glory after the service this morning, would you have words with them? <laughs> yeah, we all love BJ, do we not? He's not the Lord of Glory. Right? And so the Lord Jesus Christ, he would have said, No, 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 that's not me if, if it was not true of him. He is the Lord of glory, He is the Holy One. Titus chapter two, 2, verse 13, is even more emphatic that He is our great God and Savior. Our great God and Savior. Romans 9, 5 says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. You see, as we share the gospel, and isn't that one of our, the most important things that we can do as Christ followers? We share the gospel with people in our community. We share with people that Jesus is God. He is God. You remember Thomas at the, in John chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas answers the Lord Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. And here is one who who had doubted. It's where we, we use the phrase doubting Thomas. Thomas responds to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And so as we examine the fact that Jesus is fully God, we begin with the names of Jesus. But I want to have you turn your attention now just for a moment to the offices of Jesus. We affirm the deity of Jesus by remembering that he is the creator, that he is the creator I cannot remember if I have shared this story, but it was many years ago I was, I was teaching a, a worldview class. And the worldview class was actually in a public high school. I can't remember how the details came about, but I was perfectly happy to teach a worldview class in a public high school setting. And I remember one day I was, I was teaching this reality that Jesus created all things by the word of his power. And I received a phone call from an angry mother who said that she was upset that her daughter had been instructed that Jesus was the creator of all things. And just very, very graciously and lovingly, we, we looked at a few passages together. One was John chapter 1, verse 3. that says, All things were made through Him. And Him points back to the Logos. All things were made through Jesus and without him, without Jesus, anything was not anything made that was made. And then we looked at Colossians chapter 1 together this, that tells us very clearly that Jesus is involved in the creation of the cosmos. And with a, a, a fantastic expression on her face, she, she said, I have never heard that before. You see, she had just assumed that God the Father exclusively created all things. But we know now that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all involved in the creation of the cosmos. There's another office that the Lord Jesus holds. He's not only the creator, he is the sustainer. I want to have you turn with me to the book of Hebrews because this is a a section of scripture that is is really, really uh, mind-blowing and exciting. In Hebrews chapter 1, I made reference to this a moment ago. The writer of Hebrews says this. I want to begin in verse 1. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, pointing back to the Son, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. You could say, He or Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God the Father and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Really, what this morning's message is all about, in part, is to prepare us for the message next week. Because next week we will turn to the book of 1 Peter, where we begin to look in a more detailed way at one verse, at the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order for Jesus to accomplish that work, we see from the word of God that he must be fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully man. Additionally, as we look at the offices of Jesus, we see that the Bible tells us that he is the one who forgives sins. You remember the many stories in the pages of the Gospels where Jesus offers to forgive the sins of the people. He is also referred to as the sovereign judge in John 5, and 23. And then related to the one who forgives sins, we see in John 10 that he is the one who grants eternal life. Can you imagine living in the days of Jesus when he would come and he would offer the people eternal life? See, Jesus has not changed over the last 2,000 years. He continues to offer people eternal life. Jesus is fully God. We see it through his names. We see it through his offices. But there's a third thing I want to focus on just for a moment, and that is the claims of Jesus. The claims of Jesus. And have you turn, and we've been here many times, but it bears repeating to John chapter 8, verse 58. Here we see that Jesus makes this audacious claim, at least in the minds of the religious leaders, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, in verse 58, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That is to say, he's always existed and exists today and will exist unto all eternity. Turn over a few pages to John chapter 14, verse 9. John chapter 14, verse 9. Or let's begin in verse 8, rather. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father... And is it, it is enough for us. That, to me, almost sounds American. Lord Jesus, show us the Father, and we'll be good with that. We'll be good with that. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Shorthand, I am God, you see, if Jesus once again is not God, he is not qualified to pay the price for all our sins on the cross. Finally, as we look at this very important reality that Jesus is fully God, I want you to look for a moment at the pre-existence of Jesus. We've seen the pre-existence. In several passages this morning, we've seen it in John chapter 8, verse 58. But now I want to make an appeal to the Nicene Creed. And just so you know, Jason and I, in one respect, are in cahoots. We really are, and it's really fun to work with Jason. But in another respect, this morning, we're not in cahoots. Because I had prepared this message and actually changed some things in the sermon calendar. And I let Jason know about it. And Jason said, oh, by the way, one of the things I have planned for this morning is a congregational reading of the Nicene Creed. And I looked at my notes and went, hmm, that's interesting. So do I. So we'll do it this way. I won't have you read it, but Jason will make you read it. And it will be great. The Nicene Creed, penned in the fourth century, says this. And it affirms the preexistence of Jesus. We believe... "...in one God, the Father Almighty, the Maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, only begotten, begotten of the Father, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten and not made, being in one substance with the Father." What you need to know about the framers of the Nicene Creed is this, is that we could walk through line by line by line and spend literally hours on each phrase that emerges in the Nicene Creed. You see, what's happening in the days of the 4th century is the heretics are running wild. Some people are overemphasizing the deity of Christ. They're saying, He's God, but He's not man. Other people are saying, He's man, but He's not God. Other people are saying, I don't believe He's either. And these views are creeping into the church. And so the framers of the Nicene Creed pen this confession so we get it right. So we see that Jesus is not only fully God, but that He is fully man. Scripture also affirms the pre pre-existence of Jesus as we've seen. Colossians 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And so when we consider the birth of the lord jesus christ we remember more than the the babe in the manger as important as he was but we remember that the baby in the manger there before mary his mother and joseph his father and the wise men who came to see him this was more than a mere baby this was the creator of the cosmos he has come to pay the price for all our sins. He has come to set the captive free. He has come to remove us from our, 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 our the bonds of slavery that we find ourselves in. Once again, Owen's question. What does the scripture teach concerning the person of Jesus Christ? First, that he is truly God. But then Owen says, and perfect man. Is that a perplexing one to you? Perfect man. I'll ask the ladies. This will be easy. Have you ever met a perfect man? I have. His name is Jesus. There's only one perfect man. There's only one who has never sinned in any way, shape, or form. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so look at this with me. That Jesus is not only fully God. He is fully man. And there are several statements that help us from the word of God to see this fact in full relief. First of all. The Son was conceived as fully human. The Lord Jesus Christ was conceived as fully human. Would you turn with me to the Gospel of Luke? Luke chapter 1. And it's, once again, a a very important Christmas passage as we remember these things. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And the angel came to the virgin mary and said the holy spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you therefore the child will be born will be called holy the son of god here we see that jesus would come and he would be conceived as as a flesh and blood human Additionally, we see that the sun, and this is obvious, but the sun has a human body. There were some heretics in the church at the time, and they were called the docetists. The docetists said that that the flesh of Jesus wasn't really real. They said you you could perhaps touch him, you could see him, but it wasn't really real. And so the framers of the Nicene Creed had to deal with the docetists. And, re- and recognize that the Son truly does have a human body. In John 1, verse 14, John says, The Word, that is the logos, became flesh. He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What's fascinating to me is that He continued to have a human body after the resurrection. And he proved that to Thomas. And not only does Jesus have a human body after the resurrection, brace yourselves, the Lord Jesus Christ has a human body right now as he's seated at the right hand of the Father. The human body doesn't go away. Jesus will have a human body for all eternity. Number three, the Son is also called a man. He's called a man, much to the chagrin of the docetists. In 1 Timothy 2.5, we read, There is one God, And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Fourth, during his incarnation and only during his incarnation, that is from the point of his birth until the point of his death, the son was subject to the limitations of humans. And there are several things here. I didn't include a place for your notes intentionally, mainly because we ran out of room. But there are several things that indicate this, that the son was subject to the limitation of humans. Several things. Jesus, first of all, experienced hunger. He experienced thirst. We see this in the temptation in the desert. Jesus also experiences physical Exhaustion. We find him going away from his disciples for periods of of rest as he was a man just like any of us. He was a human being. Jesus grew and developed like any normal human being. I remember well when my friend Bruce Ware spoke at a conference. It must have been 10, 12 years ago. And he uttered these words. I think I've shared this before. We said that the Lord Jesus Christ struggled with memorizing scripture just like all of you do. And as Doreen and I sat there, I remember hearing the, from so many people like, he's fully God. Like, he wrote the Bible. He can't struggle with memorizing scripture. Well, we have to remember that he is also fully man. So he had to work. He had to labor over the word of God. Additionally, we see that Jesus experienced certain limitations in his knowledge there were certain things as a man, he said, I don't know when it's going to happen. One was his return as a man. He didn't know he experienced human emotion, including pain and sorrow. He experienced loneliness. He experienced betrayal. Jesus, according to John twelve twenty seven, had a human soul. And probably the greatest example that Jesus Christ was a human being is that he died. He died after spending those agonizing hours on Calvary's cross. Finally, I want you to see that the Son became human for a very specific purpose. And I'd have you turn with me back to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. And would you look with me, please, at verse 17. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 And here we receive the rationale for why Jesus had to become like us. Why Jesus must be a human like us. The Bible says, therefore, he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That is, to make propitiation, to affirm the love of God and to absorb the white-hot wrath of God. Here's one of four times in the New Testament where we see the word, the notion of propitiation surface, a, a beautiful, beautiful theological truth. One of the Protestant reformers had some insight on this matter of why the Son had to become human for a specific purpose He said this, it is only he who is true God and true man could bridge the gulf between God and ourselves. Did you hear that? It is only he who is true God and true man who could bridge the gulf between God and ourselves. He says the mediator must be true God and true man that only he who is true God and true man could be obedient in our stead. John Calvin says this, in short, since neither as God alone could he feel death, nor as man alone could he overcome it, he coupled human nature with divine That to atone for sin, he might submit the weakness of the one to death. And that wrestling with death by the power of the other nature, he might win victory for us. Those who despoil Christ of either his divinity or his humanity diminish majesty and glory or obscure his goodness. Close quote. You see, when we clear our focus, when we clear off our theological lenses and see the biblical portrait of Jesus, we will be more ready and more willing to receive the truth of what we'll see next week. That is the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Many of you wear glasses like me. And if you have context, this will work, too. If I go for a day or so without cleaning my glasses, you're good. It's, it's, pretty, it's fine. Until later in the day, you start seeing weird things. You start to see things. Are you with me? And, and if you're like me, you just, I just I would rather not clean my glasses. I have other things to do. I'm busy. And you'll take the time, and you'll clean your glasses, and you'll put them back on. Say, I can see clearly now. And it's even a song. <laughs> and it's the same with Contacts is if you don't clean your contacts, it's even worse, is your eyes may get infected. And I think what's happened oftentimes in the Christian life is we're not cleaning our contacts on a regular basis. We're not cleaning our glasses on a regular basis. We need to always subject our view of Jesus to the pages of the Scripture. And as we clear our focus... And are gazing gazing upon the person and the work of Jesus and see him for who he truly is. When we see Jesus through the lens of scripture, our minds then, our minds are fueled by truth. Our hearts, our hearts then are engaged in worship and our hands and our feet have a passion to serve him. Mind engaged, heart impassioned, feet and hands ready to roll. My question this morning is, are you ready to roll? Are you ready to serve Jesus? We have a lot of needy people in our community. Do we not? We have a lot of people who need to hear the simple message of the gospel. There are some people who are only looking for a cold glass of water. There are other people looking for clothes to wear. There are other people looking for help in some way, shape, or form. And those are all things that we can help with as a local church family. But my conviction is that we help with the physical needs along with the most important spiritual message that anyone could ever hear. And that is the saving message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you turn to one final passage with me to Psalm chapter 23. And this morning I want to tie these thoughts together by looking at probably the most well-known psalm in Psalm chapter 23. King David says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As we move into this Christmas season, my prayer for each of us is that we would remember that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's fully God and fully man. And this one who is fully God and fully man, he is our shepherd. As a shepherd, he cares for your needs. I know some of you, I talked to a dear friend this morning who has physical needs. I know many of you have physical needs. Some of you have needs that relate to your emotions. You're lonely. You're struggling with anxiety. You're struggling with something that maybe no one else can relate to. The Lord Jesus Christ attends to those needs. As a shepherd, he cares for your needs. As a shepherd, he, he loves you with an everlasting love. As a shepherd, this passage tells us that he restores your soul. Have you ever been in that position where you just needed to have your soul restored? I need it often. I think we all need it often, and that is one of the responsibilities and the privileges of the shepherd to restore our soul. As a shepherd, he protects you. As a shepherd, he provides you. As a shepherd, he saves his people from their sins. This morning, would you call out to your shepherd? The one who is fully God and fully man. Would you worship your shepherd? The one who came to bear the weight of all your sin on Calvary's cross. We pray with me. Father, thank you for a short thumbnail sketch. Thank you for reminding us of the, the names of Jesus. For reminding us of the nature of Jesus reminding us afresh that he is fully God and fully man, really laying the foundation for some of the important work that we'll do next week. And so, God, thank you for the hope that we possess this very moment. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for setting us free from our sins. If you're here this morning and the gospel is a new idea to you, If hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ, his person and work is new for you, my task is to remind you that Jesus came to bear the weight of sinners. And he calls you to trust in him, to turn all your trust upon him, to to believe him, but to also cast aside your sins, to repent of all your sins. And the Bible offers this promise that he will make you a new person. That he will separate your sins as far as the east is from the west. Think of the reality of having all my sins forgiven. If that's you this morning, would you cry out to him and confess your sin? Would you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he's accomplished in his death, his burial, and his resurrection? And so God, as we... I conclude by reading this section of the Nicene Creed as we sing together. May we remember the great reality of who Jesus is. We worship you now. Amen.